0: Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're speaking with donors and investors who are driving new ways to deliver aid and improve lives in Africa. As we hear about their experiments and their successes, my hope is that we can piece together a few lessons learned for those of us trying to do the same. I'm thrilled today to welcome to the show, Joseph Sentongo. Joseph is a senior vice president of IMPACT at the Global Innovation Fund, which, by the way, is the coolest sounding job title ever. The Global Innovation Fund is a fund that supports innovations that help people all around the world living on less than $5 a day. To date, it has dispersed more than $100 million of funding. And it's done this through the support of a host of the big aid organizations. They're backed by USAID. Australia, the UK, Canada, and Sweden. Joseph himself is charged with the tremendous task of deciphering impacts in this venture that's working across sectors, across massively different risk profiles, and across different financing mechanisms. I didn't even mention that GAF supports a variety of different kinds of funding, from grants to equity to debt. So it's really kind of a special institution. The reason GIF was created was as an experiment to demonstrate how Big Aid can effectively fund long-term, high-risk innovation. So obviously there's a ton for our sector and our donors to learn from their approach. Just before we dive in today, a quick word from our sponsor, Idealist.org. Are you looking to hire dedicated and talented professionals? Idealist is the number one job board for the social impact sector. Whether you're hiring for a nonprofit, a business with socially responsible positions, or a company with a social mission, Idealist is the best way to reach an engaged community of millions, all looking to make the world a better place. Sign up to start posting jobs today. Go to idealist.org aid to get a credit for one free 30-day job listing. Now back to our show. To begin, we learn a little bit more about Joseph Santongo himself, the man behind the organization.
1: I've had the fortune of spending my life in many countries, being from Uganda, growing up in Italy, Burundi and Zimbabwe, studying in Swaziland, now called the Kingdom of Iswatini, and uh, the United Kingdom. I then went on to work in organizations based in Italy, Portugal, and Tanzania, as well as the United Kingdom.
0: Amazing. That sounds like quite a varied childhood, and I'm sure it prepared you for your future global career, which we're gonna discuss more of.
1: I think the diversity of experiences I've had throughout my childhood and, and professionally has undoubtedly shaped my outlook in life, both from a personal lens, having experienced many cultures, but also from professional perspective, in terms of how I contextualize development challenges, inequalities, as well as opportunities.
0: So I know when you got started in your career, you jumped pretty quickly into international work, working with a lot of the large major aid organizations. And then at some point you decided to move into the investment space. You were part of a really innovative mechanism um, that got started in Tanzania in 2011. Can you talk a bit about that moment when you sort of veered off of a a more traditional aid career path? Yes, sure.
1: So I started off my career doing research focused on malaria early warning systems based on satellite imagery, working with the Gulbenkian Science Institute in Lisbon. After that, I joined the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations in Rome, where I was undertaking data analysis on gender inequalities and trying to help inform better policy based on existing evidence in support of countries in sub-Saharan Africa. With data analysis as the common thread, I then left the United Nations with a keenness to understand what works and how it works in a completely different context. So I joined the Investment Climate Facility for Africa, or ICF, which was an institution based in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania which was conceptualized after the Glen Eagles G8 Summit as a vehicle that can help turbocharge private sector development on the African continent. Uh, The mandate of ICA was to support governments by providing them grants to reform some of their systems, their services, which interface with small businesses, large businesses, and medium businesses. So the types of investments or grants that the Investment Climate Facility for Africa was was making were in um, setting up alternative dispute resolution mechanisms so that if there's a commercial dispute between two parties, they don't take too long to be resolved. Making it easier to register a business in order to spur the formalization of of and, and reduce informality.
0: Nice, I know in the United States you can register a business in a couple of days and in, in some of these countries, it takes months of paperwork yeah. and it's an, it can be an excruciating process for a young innovator that wants to get set up. It sounds like an incredible opportunity. I know you had a chance to work with what, 14 different countries on their e-government initiative, is that right?
1: Yes, working with ICF enabled me to work at the width and breadth of Africa from Tunisia down to Zambia, and from Cape Verde across to Mauritius on a variety of e-governance initiatives, collaborating with innovation agencies, governments, revenue authorities, commercial courts, land registries, and private sector organizations. The experience taught me about focusing on incremental gains, a willingness to accept failure, but above all, putting local stakeholders in the driving seat of their development agenda. During my time at ICF, as I mentioned earlier, I was based out of Dar es Salaam and I evaluated 30 projects at completion, which meant I was the person responsible of uh, describing how our funds were utilized and the benefits that they have generated.
0: Can you talk about a particular country? You don't have to name it, but it's always interesting if you do. But can you talk about a particular country that you worked in and one of the initiatives that you, you were involved in to improve the investment climate? What were some of the challenges? What did you learn?
1: There are many interesting examples I could refer to. Perhaps one of the most unique one was a country where we were looking to reduce the number of police roadblocks between the main seaport and the various borders with neighboring landlocked countries The economic theory is that roadblocks are a form of non-tariff barrier that hampers trade and represent a barrier to market participation and growth. And given the dearth of uh, infrastructure such as railway, roads still play a significantly important part in the transportation of goods across countries. So what I actually did for this project was to sit in a car behind a truck and follow it on a journey for 1,400 kilometers until the border post.
0: Nice. That's awesome.
1: Counting the number of times the truck was stopped along the route. This was to understand the scope of the challenge. We then worked with the police uh, in that country and implemented a technological solution to facilitate their work. Over a two-year period, we saw a reduction of these non-tariff barriers to less than a third, that is from 45 to 13, which was a significant achievement.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible achievement. Also, I love how my mental model of that work is sitting in boardrooms with bankers and diplomats. But I love how you actually went out there on the ground, you know, sitting in the truck to make sure that you knew exactly the state of how things were and how they were going to prove it's It's that... It's striking that right balance between the really high level advocacy work and the government buy-in that needs to happen, as well as making sure that for the average truck driver, transportation and logistics company, we're making real change on the ground. So I love those two contrasting mental images that we have from that story.
1: I was just going to add one one thing there, which was also, I think it's relevant to, to a lot of people working development, which was identifying the correct part to engage with. So it is quite rare that a development project goes through the police. But in this case, (laughs) if you want to directly reduce the number of roadblocks, uh, you know, you could think of it as what is the best conduit to achieve the results you want. And there that's a challenge in itself because you're engaging with a partner, which compared to, say, a ministry of gender, is not as used to engaging with donors and organizations looking to support them to sort of enhance the way they do business. So that was really an interesting challenge in itself, but I think a very important learning.
0: Absolutely. Joseph, if you can fix the police system in any of these countries, God bless you. (laughs) There's so much good work that could be done in the police system. Uh, Maybe I speak a lot from my experience here in South Africa, but I'll leave it at that. Joseph, you've worked with so many different governments working in, very it sounds like, various different parts and aspects and non-traditional actors within governments. What's what's one thing that you learned from that experience in ICF? Maybe that's relevant to your work today. What's one takeaway you have from that experience working with so many governments?
1: What I very quickly learned is that sometimes when you come in as a donor, even with the best intention, it is almost as if you have a big dollar sign on your head. So the first thing you want to do is to the dynamic to a level where you're putting the local partners in the driving seat and then develop an ability to really parse the information you're given in order to understand whether they're saying something because they think you really want to hear it or because it is genuinely abiding constraint for them. That is when you can reach a point where you understand government priorities and what your role or what role you're financing uh, can genuinely play to help resolve those uh, challenges. So when you engage closely with the bureaucrats, you will understand those challenges. If you're trying to improve the performance of a commercial court in Burkina Faso, then it's quite useful to visit Bobo Diolaso, which is the second city in terms of size in Burkina Faso. Now picture a room that is no more than four meters by four meters, and it is April, where the average temperature is 39 degrees. This room is full of important records, court cases. It's an annex to the commercial court. But if you don't digitize those records, those records will simply get destroyed in a few years, not because of a deliberate act of sabotage, But due to natural deterioration, due to paper being stored in a room with 70% humidity. And so when you're able to see the problems closely and engage with the relevant stakeholders, you see what the priorities are. And that perhaps rather than focusing on trying to enact a law through parliament that will expedite commercial cases, perhaps you ought to start with buying a scanner and scanning those records, creating some form of digitized records that are fit for a modern commercial court.
0: Nice. I like what you're saying there about you can't just take things at face value and you owe it to them and you owe it to yourselves to actually dive in and see what is the real situation that you can unblock in the work Mm. that you're doing. All right, let's step forward to the next chapter of your career as you joined the Global Innovation Fund, and worked on impact and the measurement and the accountability for impact to start off let me just say your job sounds incredibly hard first speaking about the global innovation fund one it's sector agnostic so you can't just look at health or transportation or or alternative energy indicators two it's flexible financing so you're doing not just grants but loans and venture capital style equity and three The part of the equation that a lot of people don't think about is in addition to managing a portfolio, which is all over the map, you're also managing a set of donors, you know, the people that fund you, which is not just one government, but an army of governments that fund the Global Innovation Fund. Is your job just, is it, how do you do it? That sounds crazy.
1: My approach is to understand the various priorities of those who support us like our donors, what our strategy is in terms of what the board wants us to achieve, as well as the pain points of our investees and grantees, and making sure that everything is aligned. Once you obtain the right balance in terms of prioritizing, understanding the necessary engagement, that multi-stakeholder matrix that may seem complex is actually significantly simplified. But let me try and unpack the three points you raised, which are all very important. You're absolutely right about our flexible model, which allows us to deploy both grants and risk capital, our sector agnosticism, all underpinned by an appetite for experimentation and smart risk. Let me tell you a bit more about GIF. So we're a nonprofit innovation fund headquartered in London, with an office in Washington, D.C., Singapore, and Nairobi. We invest in the development, rigorous testing, and scaling of innovations that are targeted at improving the lives of the world's poorest people. Our approach is quite unique in that we follow a venture capital approach, but rather than maximizing profit, we're looking to maximize the social benefits that the innovators we partner with are creating. We believe that the best ideas for solving some of the world's most critical problems can come come from anyone or anywhere, be it private sector or public sector, for-profit or not-for-profit. Speaking of reporting, we are fortunate that when we're set up by bilaterals, including DFID at the time, now FCDO, and DFAT, And then later on, a GAC who also support us, Global Affairs Canada. Um, They allow us to pursue this sector agnostic idea of open innovation. So our portfolio contains innovations that are focused on development challenges as diverse as education, agriculture, transport, domestic resource mobilization, gender, climate, climate change, and the circular economy. So as you alluded to, this really does pose a, a measurement challenge. So what we developed really early on is an internal impact measurement framework, which we call practical impact. This is an approach that gives us the ability to forecast, track and update the social impact that we think will be generated by the innovation we support at year 10. We use a simple equation of bread, which is the people impacted, multiplied by depth, that is by how much we're improving the incomes or we're improving people's lives relative to their income, uh, multiplied by probability of success. This enables us to bring various innovations onto the same measure of utility. And we focus to year 10 because this is in line with our philosophy of providing patient capital, cognizant of the fact that innovations take long, to scale, to test out their operations and business models and to achieve the requisite growth, which is required to achieve meaningful impact at scale.
0: Fascinating. And I know there's much more resources about practical impact on your website. What I love about that framework is that it's, it's not specific to the work of the Global Innovation Fund in the sense that it's a very general framework for capturing interventions that incorporate risk. Breadth of impact, I get that. Depth, I get that. But we're talking about taking gambles, and it's about having enough gambles that the probability of success is high and knowing the amount of risk that's in there. So I think that's really a model that other innovative funders and ventures can use. What about the other piece that we mentioned earlier, the fact that you're accountable to so many different governments? Um, Any listener to this podcast knows I've had my beef with USAID indicators and how complex and overburdened they can be. I have to imagine reporting to, I don't know how many governments you have, six, seven different governments. That sounds like a reporting nightmare. So how do you do it?
1: Our donors require some form of annual reporting from us. And we have a donor relations mechanism that is supported by various teams internally to help put together those annual reports against specific log frames, which enable us to track our progress and see whether we're really achieving the goals and targets as set out. Where we try to go further at the Global Innovation Fund is also to think of a world where development aid can be a lot more transparent. So we are part of initiatives such as Publish What You Fund, which is really about providing data on a regular basis to show how contributing to some form of aid transparency index where it is clear to all stakeholders which are interested what you financed, how much your level of support was, who were the intended beneficiaries, what is the sector according to a specific code, <clears throat> which means that um, a work is not just in, a, in a, some form of vacuum between a bilateral GIF and an investor, but it's really open for the wide world to be able to to sort of understand what GIF's work is.
0: That makes sense. I think it ties to something you were saying even before we started recording, which is, one, tracking your outcomes, You know, making sure if you're promising better health or you're promising employment, that you're delivering on those promises. And so it's something that your donors want, sure, but you also want, your team wants, in order to guide the work that you do. And then the other aspect that you mentioned is publishing that data so that if there's members of the public or government that want to see your impact return, they can. And it's not just for the government that we generate these data. Joseph, can you share some of your personal experiences as you've been leaving the foundations worked in impact and in data? What are some of the challenges that you faced or blockers that you've encountered that you struggled with and overcame over the course of your work on data and impact?
1: So as we take pipeline innovations through our diligence process, it is pretty evident to us that the rigor of evidence can vary quite significantly based on the type of innovator or entrepreneur and their background. So for instance, you can imagine that an academic research who's run a previous randomized control trials will have a body of evidence about a specific innovation that perhaps is more robust um, than other applicants, but maybe what they're trying to solve is the generalizability question. Can it work in a different country compared to where we tested it? And there, the question to answer is, you know, what are the similarities and what is the likelihood that this will be able to scale in a different context? But in cases where we have to make decisions to invest with fewer data points that we would want to, you know, we accept the fact that you can't always have perfect information. And what we try to do then is to say, well, if we take smart risk uh, on this innovation, maybe we can build in data collection, some KPIs in the reporting framework, and really accompany this innovator on this journey to generate learnings So that at least when we reach the end of the GIF investment period, we are able to tell a much better story from an evidence perspective on uh, what works, how it works, and also what doesn't work in some cases.
0: That makes so much sense. Ultimately, you're looking at that pipeline of innovation and late in the stage, you'll have a lot of evidence, but you need to take a different approach. Earlier in the stage. And that doesn't mean that you stop when there's no evidence. It means you work hand in hand with the innovators to make sure that evidence is being generated so that as you move through that pipeline, the evidence appears. And that's part of the work of innovation. I actually wanted to ask two last questions before we switch over to the rapid fire. Can you share with me the story of one project or organization that you've supported yourself through your work at the Global Innovation Fund?
1: In terms of specific innovations, we like to think of our support going beyond the financial. So how do we enable the organizations we work with to be best in class from an analytics perspective, from an ESG perspective, from a business model perspective? So we've worked with organizations such as Mr. Green Africa, which is a tech-enabled plastics recycling company disrupting the current informal plastic recycling sector in Kenya. And they operate with a series of trading hubs across Nairobi and Kisumi, where they transact with sourcing agents, um, these informal waste pickers, directly purchase their collected plastic at a premium vis-a-vis competitors, and then transfer this plastic to their manufacturing plant, where they're processed and sold as post-consumer recycled plastics for use by fast-moving consumer good companies uh, such as Unilever.
0: And just to paint that picture for our audience, you can imagine the kind of person whose life, whose job is wading through mountains of trash in, in an Islam outside of Nairobi and just like the, the, the health hazards and the occupational hazards of that kind of work. And that's the way that many people live. And so the work of Mr. Green Africa is to create a viable income, even for that community of people with that line of work.
1: So, you know, going beyond our investment, we're proud of the work we've done with them to enhance the m systems in order to have better data, better data integrity, dashboard, better reporting, in order to be really able to tell this informal waste picker, this sourcing agent uh story, feedback sessions we've had with them, working with them in C2 at their at their plants, trying to also make them best in class from an ESG perspective. And really seeing they've evolved from 2019 to 2023 in in this period of our partnership, um, that is really exhilarating. And of course, not losing sight of the fact that they're working with, as you alluded to, some of the most marginalized people uh, who are on extremely low incomes, providing them an income above average and building this globally recognized model of integrated recycling infrastructure, whilst at the same time advocating for a more ethical supply chain. You know, those are the types of of narratives the treaty makes. Um, working at the Global Innovation Fund uh, uh, exciting.
0: That's a great example, Joseph. One of the things I really like about that example is it it really speaks to the strength of the Global Innovation Fund. Working with this innovative organization that is leveraging a market approach, is working cross-sector, has implications on health, on economic development, on climate, this recycling approach, and in that aspect, was able to leverage the capabilities of the Global Innovation Fund from a reporting, from a management, from an operations perspective in order to improve its own operation. So it sounds like a a great connection and a great mix between an organization like that and a donor like Global Innovation Fund. Joseph, the Global Innovation Fund has a unique funding approach to supporting innovation. What is one specific example of initiative you've been able to support through GIF in which this unusual approach has made you more successful than other more traditional foundations or donors?
1: Where possible, GIF seeks to co-invest and de-risk investments to catalyze additional capital. To do so, we actually work very closely with development finance institutions, development agencies, local government partners, philanthropic foundations, and other impact investors. What that means is that at a portfolio level, We currently estimate that for every GIF dollar investment or GIF dollar invested, our investees have been able to raise an additional seven, which currently means around $700 million. There are several examples of catalytic investments in our investment portfolio. Maybe one example is, is DMI. DMI is Development Media International, which is a UK-based organization that uh, GIF provided a $2 million grant to, to enable them to produce radio content that promotes the use of modern contraceptives and work with radio stations in Burkina Faso to integrate this family planning message into their programming. They do so by broadcasting 10, you know, m- messages multiple times a day on market-leading local radio stations using 60-second spots. The messages focus in an entertaining way on the key barriers to adoption of contraception identified through formative research. The GIF grant enabled the DMI to produce content for their radio messaging, which was then tested through an RCT. And the RCT found that the radio campaign had led to a 5.9 percentage point increase in the modern contraception, a prevalence rate. That's great. Women were also 14% more likely to say that they should control the number of children that they have during their lifetime. So nice. our support, sort of our funding successfully unlocked the scaling potential of DMI based on the evidence generated. And subsequent to that, you know, saw so a Nash nationwide scale up in Burkina Faso, and in addition, They were able to scale up in an additional seven countries through an FCDO-supported program called WISH. We've also seen replication in Nigeria through a separate NGO, which means that this innovation uh, has not only catalyzed additional financing, but is also reaching scales in the millions of women in terms of people positively benefiting from the innovation.
0: Nice. That's a great example. I love how what you're calling out there is that you don't see yourself as, as better than other donors or investors. But maybe by the way that you're structured and your mandate, you're allowed to run a little bit ahead of the pack to blaze a trail, which might be a little bit uncomfortable or new. And once you've blazed that trail, that you really rely and work with other partners to scale up those innovations. That makes a ton of sense to me. Last quick question for you is, if you wanted to say one or two things about what's next, For Global Innovation Fund, it's been established for eight years now. It has a certain momentum. Is there anything in the next year or five years that you want to point to?
1: The Global Innovation Fund will continue to invest in interesting innovations. We are trying to meet the moment in terms of where international development stands now and focus areas. So we have Innovating for Climate Resilience Fund, which was launched at COP26, initially with support of of the British government. We have a gender subfund supported by Global Affairs Canada, which enables us to invest in gender transformative innovations. So where we see certain focus areas and opportunities for innovation, we will be willing to deploy our capital to try and resolve difficult development challenges.
0: Great to hear, Joseph. Thank you so much. I know I've trampled all over your afternoon. But let's dive into the rapid-fire questions that we use to round out our show. First question for you, Joseph, is about differentiators. As someone who has crossed paths with many different grantees and potential grantees, what is one differentiator, in your personal opinion, you don't have to speak for the investment committee, but in your personal opinion, that sets the best innovators apart from the rest? I
1: would say an innovator that is willing to say no point blank to proposal or, or a counter proposal and and is very clear about why they've chosen a certain path and are willing to to double down on it and is also willing to learn from their mistakes and also may be able to describe how they got to where they are and what they've learned along the way
0: absolutely I think there's no shortage of organizations that will take a check and spend it but what you really want are the ones that have thought hard about the change they want to make in the world, are committed to it, and won't veer from it, even if there's the distraction of a check in the picture. On the aid front, as an organization that has done a ton of experimentation and flexible financing and new ways of working with innovators, what guidance would you give to other donors in order to better support innovation?
1: I think it's hard for me to sort of look under the bonnet and given the fact that a lot of these donor aid agencies have, you know, long-term strategies and, and approaches to, to development that maybe don't necessarily lend themselves well to, to innovation. But what I would say is that developing a tolerance for quote-unquote failure is a useful way of priming yourself for risk-taking, which is, a necessary attribute in support of innovation.
0: I think that's a really important message. On the one hand, in the medical institutions, there's this ethos of do no harm. And on the other hand, in Silicon Valley, you have the fail fast, experiment quickly. And those two philosophies are directly at odds. So how can we apply that when we want to merge innovation into some of these institutions that have existed for a very long time? It's certainly not easy. On the advice front, if you could take a step back in time What advice would you give your younger self? I
1: would say maybe to really understand the power of the economic argument. If I look at my career working initially on malaria, then malaria early warning systems, gender inequities, private sector development and innovation common thread to me is actually the the power of the economic argument that underpins all these challenges. So many of us in the development world are really passionate advocates for incredibly important causes, but perhaps fall short when it comes to making a compelling argument. And this cuts across any topic one can think of. For instance, I co-chair the board of a charity, Orchid Project, that is looking to eradicate the practice of female genital cutting And of course, the human and health argument is extremely clear and the impact on the young lives of the girls who are subjected to this. But actually, what you find is that you can also galvanize action by explaining the sheer economic cost. When it comes to the Global Innovation Fund, we think that based on a social rate of return analysis of just a handful of innovations from our early portfolio, they have generated in excess of $500 million in social returns. This is way above the cost of GIF in terms of the donor support we've received. And we think this makes a clear and compelling case for investing in GIF and innovation more broadly.
0: Nice. Joseph, would you like to offer a shout out or a kudos to someone who has inspired or guided your work?
1: I've been fortunate to work with amazing supervisors throughout my career. One of these people who continues to be a great mentor and friend is Gabriel Rugalema. He was my supervisor when I worked for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. In 2014, he was overseeing the work of FAO in Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis. Very quickly, Sierra Leone was declared a non-family duty station, meaning that his family had to evacuate and yet to remain there alone. What really strikes me and remains with me to date is how he managed to remain a great partner to the government of Sierra Leone, helping conceptualize and implementing solution to maintain food security, whilst at the same time maintaining the serenity Uh, from a personal perspective, under the most challenging of
0: circumstances. Sounds like an incredible guy. I hope to meet him one day. On the reading front, is there one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in the industry? So
1: I read various development blogs, journal articles, world blank blog posts for more topical insights. We have an internal Slack channel called Reading at the Global Innovation Fund where colleagues share various articles or or relevant papers, which are always great to consume and really speak to the nature of the learning organization we are. For broader geopolitical perspectives, I also read a lot of news articles relevant to various sectors. And rather boringly, when I have a bit of spare time, I actually try to digest these longer National development strategies that governments release every four or five years
0: wow that's your leisure reading
1: yeah I think uh it's quite useful they they're they're long when you understand some of these national development plans you better understand what government priorities are and in a way it's a proxy for probability of success or the likelihood that initiatives that you want to support as a donor have because you understand how much resources governments are willing to invest in a given sector.
0: Nice. Last question for you, Joseph, and this one is just for fun. Is there a book or blog or a podcast that you've enjoyed in your personal time that you'd like to share with our audience?
1: In my personal time, I really like to watch live sports. I'm a big sports fan. I love watching Serie A the Italian men's football league, NFL in the U.S., as well as the NBA. I also follow shows hosted by a Hall of Famer, NFL Hall of Famer, Shannon Sharp, who brings real sports experience and locker room experience to the sports debate. I do think it's nice to have activities that are quite different from your day-to-day job, and I find it as a perfect way to unwind.
0: That sounds super fun. Joseph, for listeners who want to stay up to date on what's going on with Global Innovation Fund or maybe find out a little bit more about your work, what's the best way for them to get more information?
1: Well, our website provides a lot of information on what we invest in, our mission, how we measure impact, the, the organizations and, and the governments that support us, as well as an open window, which is really we believe that the best ideas can come from everywhere and anywhere. And therefore, we encourage people to submit applications through our open window, which will be looked at by our investment team, and will get a considerate reply in, in due course about their application.
0: Thank you, Joseph. And that website is available at globalinnovation.fund. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Joseph. Some of the things that really stood out to me from this conversation was the importance not just of evidence in aid work, but also of generating evidence as we experiment with new ways of providing aid. I really appreciated Joseph's thoughts and approach to measuring impact that might be impact in the future, the kind of stuff that might not yet demonstrate its value today. And from everything that the Global Innovation Fund is doing, I truly hope and believe that Big Aid can learn something about how to account for the necessary risks that are baked into the business of innovation. If you'd like to download the Practical Impact Guide or other resources on the Global Innovation Fund, you can find them on our website at aidevolved.com. And if you like what you heard today, connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at aidevolved. I'll see you in a few weeks. When we speak with Margot Koymans, who leads investments in high-impact digital health for Philips, the global technology company, in her work as head of Philips Foundation and Philips Impact Ventures. Until then, take care, everybody.